kind of review where we were last week real quickly, and um, that'll, that'll catch us up to speed. Uh, we talked about why this is such a hot topic, and it's, it's a hot topic because uh, men, for the most part in America, have failed to be the nail pierced servants of their wives, and, uh, and that has resulted in abuse in some situations. That's resulted in passivity in other situations, which can be uh, just as damaging as abuse. And, uh, and they've abdicated their role as spiritual leader to their wives. We said the second reason is because that this sounds like cavemen talk to the world. And if there's any topic we would talk about um, uh, that would make us run against the grain of culture, it would be something that talks about men um, having authority or, or being the uh, final spiritual authority in the church. And, uh, and, and, and the world would, would just hear that as, as foreign. And finally we said, because in the fall we learned that in Genesis 3 we're all broken. We're all bent. And, uh, and, and so right from the beginning everything got broken up. And so this is what creates uh, this. This is what turns this into the topic that we find ourselves in today. We then turned our attention and said there's really two different camps here. There's what we called complementarians and egalitarians. Complementarians, we, we said there's some agreement there. But the fundamental disagreement between the two of them is that egalitarians say that uh, a woman is not limited in any role in the church, whereas uh, the complementarians say no, a woman is can, can serve anywhere, but is prohibited by Scripture from being the senior or lead pastor or ruling elder uh, in the church, uh, what we call the senior governmental authority. And then we gave examples of essential equality that you find in Scriptures. We went back to, we went back to Genesis and showed how God created man and women and and uh, we went to Corinthians and saw some of the gifts and said God gives out based on the fact that what complementarians say is that men and women are equal in essence but distinct in their roles. And so we said, look, let's look at the essential equality, that essence uh, that they are equal in. And so we looked at that and, uh, and showed scripturally where that came. Then we gave some examples of um, male and female role distinctions, starting in Genesis 2 before the fall. So this is not something that resulted, that came about as of the fall or because of the fall. It's something that, that, uh, that started out before the fall that God saw that there were role distinctions that Adam and Eve would play. Uh, then finally, we ended up just talking about this biblical pattern that you see throughout Scripture of, of, male, uh, of, of God appointing males as the final uh, spiritual authority uh, for His people. And so we went back and we said in Israel that was true. And so you just trace it through. You've got the heads of the tribes of Israel. You've got Moses. You've got Abraham. I mean, start at the beginning and you see that God had set up men as leadership in the church. We then talked about male leadership with Christ. Christ was in no way a guy who went along with cultural norms when he didn't feel like those cultural norms were ran parallel with the kingdom. So, I mean, he would confront stuff all the time that he didn't. I mean, the fact that Christ had women on his team was anti-cultural. And so Christ had opportunity to appoint women to his inner circle of 12, and he never did. He never, there isn't one instance of Christ making a woman an apostle. Okay, so then we went from there and we said, now we can look at male leadership in the church. And so we, we looked at examples of that and we made it clear that this is not a matter of ability. There are women in this room that would outclass most men in this room from an ability standpoint. That isn't the issue. It is not an issue of ability. It is an issue of what God designed us to do in the roles that we play 
within the church. So it, despite the fact that the culture would say there should be no distinctions, God says there are distinctions. And there are God-designed distinctions in the way that He created men and in the way He created women. So I think we're on page 6 of your outline. If you look at it there, you're going to see further evidence from the New Testament kind of in the middle of the page. And uh, that's where we pick up and we're going to race from there. Okay, now, I told you last week we're going to give you lots of Scripture. I invite you to go look at it. I invite you to go check me out and see if I've taken it out of context. But we're going to, I just have to kind of mention it today and we'll turn to a couple and just show you where they are and, 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 and breeze through them. But for you to do some of your own study on that and then you know what, if you have questions you want to email me, I'll try to end early enough today where if you have more questions uh, we can talk about it. Well, further evidence. First is that if you look at 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, you will see that the qualifications that Paul gives for elders, okay, elders of a church, not deacons, but elders of a church are uniquely male in that he requires both be husbands of one wife. If you're an elder, you must be the husband of one wife. Now, that is a role that only a man can fill. And nobody argues with that. There is no argument that this is not referring exclusively to men. Okay, so the husband of one wife. Now, what you can argue and what has been argued is a, a cultural argument. And that is to say that, that, that it is either that, that Paul's uh, uh, uniquely male tone there, if you will, is either culturally conditioned or just plain chauvinistic, and I've heard both. Okay, now, if you want to go the chauvinistic route, that's kind of a dangerous route to go because you're saying, um, I believe in the plenary, that is that all Scripture is inspired, the plenary inspiration of Scripture. And if you believe in the inspiration of Scripture, then you're not just saying that Paul is a chauvinist, you're saying God's a chauvinist. That somehow it's a, it's a problem with God. And, and, and that's just not true. And listen, that's not a very uncommon thing to hear. That Boy, Paul was very chauvinistic in the way he approached women. Nothing could be further from the truth. Paul and Jesus were radical when it came to women in their day. Okay, so, so people want to say, well, this is culturally conditioned language. The second thing, uh, they, they look at that, well, th that is the second thing, that it's culturally conditioned. But remember that Paul is writing Timothy, Titus, Corinth, he does it in all three instances, and all three of these are in different regions. These are all distinct cultures. Timothy is in Ephesus. Uh, Titus, when he writes to him, the most clear examples of what, what leadership in the church ought to be that Paul gives is, is him writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, you can write that down, and in writing to, to Titus in Titus 1, and saying these are the qualifications of, of elders. Okay, Ephesus was a place where uh, women uh, were revered, okay? So don't think this is a place where women were heavily oppressed. I mean, in all of the world, in all time, women have been oppressed one way or another. But in, in, in Ephesus, there was a temple there called the Temple of Artemis or Diana of the Ephesians. You've heard that. In Acts, they talk about, you know, Diana of the Ephesians. They all scream out this and they cry it out for hours on end. Um, so they worshipped this goddess of fertility, and the result of that was that women uh, held a high place. There were strong women, strong leaders in the city of Ephesus. And yet Paul steps onto that, and he looks at Timothy, he looks at Titus, and says, uh, no, the, the leadership, the primary, the final spiritual authority in a church needs to be men. 
Then he goes and talks about in the book of Timothy, in cha- starting in chapter 3, verse 8, he talks about deacons, then he talks about deaconesses. Okay, so he, he deals with all three of those roles. Now, when you turn to Titus, he doesn't talk about deacons at all. Why? Because he was just, if, the, the church in Ephesus had been going for quite a long time. It was more a more mature church. So Paul is saying, look, you've already got, we've got, now you need to know not only how to appoint some elders, you need to know how to appoint the people that help those elders, and we call those deacons. I mean, diakonos just literally means servant. Okay, they are there to serve the the elders is how Paul would say it. Okay, so he says these are the people that that this is the way you that it should play out in the local church. But then he goes to to uh, Titus and Titus is in this brand new territory called Crete. And he says, go there and appoint elders in every city. There has not been a church in Crete yet. Okay, so I left you in Crete to set in order what remains and to appoint elders in every city. And this is what an elder will look like. Okay, so he says, go there. They don't need deacons yet. Okay, Ephesus does. Crete didn't. Okay, so you've got elders uh, in one, you've got elders and deacons in another. Now, you know, so we, the problem with the modern day church is that we use those terms like they're interchangeable. And they're not. So we say, board member, deacon, trustee, uh, elder, and we think it's all the same thing. And it is not the same thing biblically. Okay, just, just look at 1 Timothy 3, and you start up at, at, at about, I think it's verse uh, 8. And, and in fact, let's just turn there so you can, we can all point it out together. Um, 1 Timothy 3, sorry, um, starting, just let, no, missed it. Yeah, starting in verse 1, you've got, you've got elders 1 through 7, you've got deacons and deaconesses in 8 uh, through 13, okay? Uh, and we use those interchangeably, but you'll see there, they're not, okay? They're meant to, to define distinct roles. Second, there, there is no reference anywhere in the New Testament, not one, to a female elder. Not one. Now, you can object and say, well, that's an argument from silence. And it is, but it's a deafening silence, okay? Because... Um, especially when you take it in conjunction with the explicit direction to Timothy and Titus that this is what an elder ought to be. So the bottom line is this. We simply have absolutely no biblical precedent for female elders nor anything in the text that describes the nature, function, and qualification of elders that would lead us to believe that female eldership could ever even be a possibility. Okay? Now, let's just real quickly, leadership in the home, number four on your, on your uh, paper. Male leadership in the home. Okay, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, just, and this is just something quick. Uh, it says to, says to wives, be submissive to your husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, this doesn't cr- contradict what I said last week, and that is uh, uh, that wives are not called to be disobedient to God, uh, husbands cannot demand a wife to do something that would disobey the bounds of Scripture, disobey God, because a wife's allegiance is ultimately to God in Christ, okay? It's not to her husband. Her husband is secondary to that. So they, Paul says in Ephesians, wives, submit to your husbands as to God. Okay, God's not going to tell you to go disobey Him, okay? So, um, if... if, if Paul says, um, 
Paul doesn't say, or, or Peter doesn't say, be submissive even if your husband beats you. No, never. No one would condone that. That's abandonment. That's grounds for divorce, in my opinion. Um, it says, be submissive to him even though he might be disobedient toward God. Not let him lead you into disobedience. Okay, so... Um, and I've seen this in my own life. I've seen it with Michelle. I've seen her do this with me where where um, there may be an area of disobedience where Michelle didn't like beat me over the head and tell me you're disobedient and you're rebellious toward God. She simply gave me a godly example. And I saw it and I changed. I saw it with my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law was so winsome toward my father-in-law that ultimately he was won to Christ because of it. Exactly what First Peter 3 is talking about. Okay? Now, let's, uh, we're just going to take most of our time looking at the objections. And I've added a couple today, and we'll, uh, we'll, so we're going to move through these uh, pretty quick. So you, you take all that, and you say, all right, we see no biblical precedent for female eldership in the church. We see deacons. We don't ever see uh, God or, or Christ appointing uh, men to be the ultimate spiritual leader uh, in, in, uh, among his people. So, but there's some objections to that. Okay, number one. Chris, you have left out the many significant examples of female leadership in Israel, in the gospel and in the early church. It is simply not correct to say that the Bible exhibits a uniform pattern of religious male leadership. Okay, and here's my response. Yes, women do play a significant role and at times leadership role throughout the Bible. But there's two things to consider here. First... Most of the examples of female leadership appear in roles of those other than the highest religious authority. Okay, for example, there are some prophetesses uh, and female teachers in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But where are there any women priests? Nowhere. Um, where are there any women heads of the tribes of, any, of Israel? Where are there any women monarchs that rule over all of Israel? They're not to be found. Athalia in Second Chronicles 22-23 was crushed by God almost immediately. Okay? Now, there are no women apostles in the New Testament. And, you, and if you want to say, well, Romans 16, Chris, it says Junia among the apostles or Junia of the apostles, depending on your translation, uh, what do you say about that? And what I say is that if you want to hang your hat there, then you're hanging it on a very tenuous hook because Junia is probably the most disputed name in all of the Bible. And, and I'm just telling you, you go look it in any scholar you want to find. Feminists will say, I can prove to you that it's female. You've got other people over here that say, I can prove to you that it's male. I would say the best scholars in the world that I have read, and I've done a lot of research on this over the last few weeks, look and go, we don't have any idea what this is. We can't say. So, um, so we have to be very careful that we don't create a doctrine out of one verse that's so, I mean, we're going to overthrow so much of Scripture because of one name that seems to be we're not sure about. Well, that doesn't seem logical to do, okay? Uh, that seems dangerous, in fact. What about Deborah? Oh, yeah, Deborah. Remember that? Judges 4 and 5. And Deborah was a judge, right? Um, she was the highest religious leader, leader in her country, was she? Gotcha, Chris. Okay, well, here's my response. Deborah 
is, uh, along with all the other judges in, in, in the book of Judges, uh, is a tribal judge. You look at them. These are not rulers over all of Israel. Just read Judges. I just read it all this week. Read Judges. It is not, they are not, they are tribal leaders. Okay, that's number one. But, but okay. Um, but Deborah, along with Jael, the other woman that she kind of uh, uh, partners up with, if you will, uh, were living indictments of the weakness of men. Okay, this is exactly the point that Deborah herself makes when Barak comes to her and says, you got to go out and fight for her. She says, Barak, I'll do it, but you know what's going to happen? I'm going to get the glory and the glory will not be for a man. It's the lack of courage on the part of the men and she calls them, uh, calls them down for it. So, so, so that's number one. In addition, the book of Judges is an especially precarious foundation for establishing any kind of vision for God's ideal for leadership in the church. Listen, just sit down and read Judges if you can make it through without being wholly depressed by it. It is so not what is supposed to be happening in Israel. It it, it is, in fact, the whole point of Judges as a book is to show the failure of leadership. Twice. And at the, the very, in fact, the very last verse of the book of Judges says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everybody did as he, uh, uh, what was right in his own eyes. What's it saying? No leadership. It just was, it was anarchy in the nation of Israel. So you can't go and then point to, to Deborah and say that's normative. So, so for you, for, 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 but to do this would also say, okay, we're going to take something that seems to be implied in Scripture and then override the explicit direction of other parts of Scripture. And you've got to be very careful not to do that, okay? So no matter where you land on Deborah, you cannot say that what happens in Judges 4 and 5, in fact, in all of Judges, is normative for what God wants for leadership. You just can't say that. You can't even say that of guys like Gideon and Samson. Just turn back two books to Leviticus or to Deuteronomy and you will see this is what God says. This is the way leadership is supposed to happen. And it's just absolutely not happening in the book of Judges. Okay, so, so um, you, you can't look at Deborah and say that's normative of the way God operate, operates in light of the overwhelming evidence in Scripture of the contrary, Okay. Number two, doesn't Paul's statement that in Christ there is neither male nor female, for you all one in Christ Jesus, in Galatians 3.28, okay, take away gender as a basis for distinction in roles? And the answer is no. Why? Okay. Most of us, now, now hear me, most of us do not force Paul's neither male nor female when he says that beyond what we know from other passages, he would approve about that term. Okay, let me, let me give you an example of what I mean. I think everybody in this room, nobody in this room, would argue uh, with the fact that homosexuality is a sin. Right? Homosexuality is a sin. Very explicitly. So I can't take neither male nor female and stretch it beyond what Paul intended and say, therefore, homosexuality is okay. Right? If Hey, if there's no male or female, then that must mean gender is gone. So what's the problem with homosexuality? And that's exactly 
the lengths that some, I'm not saying all, uh, certainly not evangelical feminists, but some feminists have gone. So it, uh, uh, we know from Romans 1, 24 to 32, that Paul does not mean for the created order of, of different male and female roles to be overthrown by Galatians 3, okay? So the context, what's happening in Galatians 3.28 makes it abundantly clear the sense in which male and female, uh, slave and free, uh, are, are equal. And that is that they're equally justified in verse 24. They're equally freed from the bondage of legalism in verse 25. They're equally children of God in verse 26. Equally clothed with Christ, verse 27. Equally possessed by Christ, verse 29. Equally heirs of the promise of Abraham, verse 29. So Galatians 3.28 speaks to our joint inheritance. 1 Timothy and Titus and Corinthians all speak to male headship in the church. And so therefore, we can't take one verse and override and abolish the other. You can't do that. If you do that, you're going to end up excising all kinds of Scripture. Okay? Number three. If God has genuinely called a woman to be a senior pastor, then how can you say that she should not be one? Okay, Um, I would say it this way. Someone's wrong. Either that woman is wrong or the Bible is wrong. Okay, if if the Bible teaches that uh, that this is these are the people that can fill the role of of final spiritual authority or senior leadership or a ruling elder or senior pastor, whatever tag you want to put on that. Then then someone is wrong. I realize we're you know, we're part of a denomination uh, that would say I'm wrong. I mean, they would say female leadership is okay, uh, no problem uh, in a church. And they ordain women all the time. Uh, I believe that's wrong. I don't believe that's scriptural. I don't believe God genuinely calls women to be senior pastors because I believe that's in direct violation of scripture. Okay? I don't say this because I can read the private experience of anyone. I say this because of the clear teachings of scripture. Okay? And I believe private experience must always yield to the interpretation of Scripture. I can't say, I was in my prayer closet, and I mean a voice from God spoke to me and said, divorce your wife. I can't say that. That that would be overthrowing Scripture in favor of my private experience. I don't care how powerful, I don't care if it knocked me on my can, I don't care if I couldn't wake up for three days and I felt like I was in the seventh heaven. That's wrong. And it has to yield to, to the interpretation of Scripture. Okay? So if the Bible teaches that men alone uh, are to bear the primary teaching and spiritual authority responsibilities of the pastorate, then by implication, the Bible also teaches that God does not call women to be senior pastors. So our giftings even, if we say we're gifted, well, I'm gifted to teach and I'm a woman. Okay? What if that's the case? All right. Your gifting still has to be done within the confines of what Scripture says. That's exactly, that, that, that is part of Paul's point in 1 Corinthians when he talks to them and says, look, these are the parameters in which you use the gifts of tongues and interpretation and prophecy. Look, just because you have it doesn't mean that you can stand up and babble in the church. There are, there are confines that Scripture puts around that. Am I going to argue that Beth Moore doesn't have the gift of teaching? No way. She's a better teacher than I am. I'm going to argue Beth Moore can't be a senior pastor because that's a confine that Scripture puts on her. That, 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 and, and she will willingly submit to that. Okay? So, 
So I'm just saying that in that case where a woman has that kind of private experience, I'm not saying that it's not sincere, and I'm not saying that that woman is earnest. I'm not even saying that woman's not called to the ministry. I, I bet she is. The, the, the issue is that, is that you know, very often that divine compulsion to serve come, comes upon Christians without a precise avenue of service. And, and when that happens, we've got to not only look to our gifts, we've got to look to what Scripture says. Okay, that, we have to go to what Scripture says there. Okay? All right, now, number four. Since the Bible teaches mutual submission, how can there be hierarchy? Okay, well, the Bible does teach mutual submission, but what does that mean? Okay, um, and even if that means complete okay, reciprocity between Michelle and I, like there's absolutely no hierarchy between the two of us, um, uh, it, it, it does not mean that husbands and wives submit to each other in the same way. Okay, because look, we're looking at Ephesians 5.21 where, where Paul says submit to one another. Okay, all right. Well, if that's if we're to understand that as as total reciprocity, then we we can't understand that as being submission the same way in light of the context of Ephesians five. Here's what I mean. Paul says, "Wives, submit to your husbands as to Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church." Now, um, are Christ and the church mutually submitted? They are not if what we want to say is that submission means that Christ puts himself willingly under the authority of the church. Christ doesn't put himself under the authority of anybody. Okay? Now, but they are mutually submitted, and this isn't a contradiction of Scripture, if submission means that Christ submitted himself to suffering and death for the good of the church, which is exactly what Paul is saying to men. Okay? So, uh, uh, we don't, Christ doesn't submit by putting himself under the, the authority. Uh, another example would be a pastor and a church. Are there ways that I am submitted to the church? Yes. I can't do anything without, like, you know, all of you voting and saying yes on certain things, right? I'm submitted to you uh, un- unless I, I, I have to come to you and say, okay, the, here's some things. That we Now, there's other things that I can do, but there's some things that I have to be submitted to you on. Are you submitted to me? Absolutely. That's not me saying, you better submit to me. That's Scripture. Scripture says, be submitted to your authority. So, that's what the Bible says. So, is there hierarchy in a marriage? Is there hierarchy in a church? Absolutely. And can we refuse to submit to it? Yes. To our peril. Okay, so therefore, even in the context of mutual submission, there can be hierarchy. And to say that if mutual submission is present, hierarchy must be absent is absurd. doesn't even work outside the church. Okay? All right. Now, listen to me real carefully on this one. I want, and I, I didn't put this in your notes, but um, as I was preparing today, I thought I need to, I need to, to tackle this one. Okay. Don't you think that Paul's emphasis on male leadership in the church and at home are examples of temporary compromise with the patriarchal system of his day? Okay, right? In that day, it was a patriarchal system. So Paul was simply compromising there. 
Whereas the main thrust of Scripture is towards leveling of the field of, of gender-based role differences. Okay, so now... Here's the thing. Obviously, there are times in Scripture where um, Scripture regulates undesirable relationships without condoning them. What do I mean? Jesus says that the law permitted the Pharisees to divorce because of the hardness of their hearts. Um, Paul regulates lawsuits among believers, even though the very fact, he says, that you have lawsuits indicates that you're already defeated. Philemon... Uh, in Philemon, Paul regulates how Christian slaves were to relate to their masters. And he says, no longer a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. Okay, so, so they regulate it without condoning it. But in what way, um, if we were to say that the ideal is that we, 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 we don't condone it, we regulate it. I mean, there's something not ideal about some of these things. The, the, uh, slavery is not ideal. Uh, divorce is not ideal. Um, lawsuits are not ideal, and so there's some regulations. But in what way is the headship of Christ to the church not ideal? In what way is submission to God less than what is desirable? That's Ephesians 5, Right? And yet there are, uh, these are the comparisons that Paul makes uh, in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 is not a compromise with a patriarchal society. If anything, Ephesians 5 holds out this vision that if it were fulfilled in a marriage, the marriage would be beyond our wildest dreams. We couldn't imagine what it would be like. So the loving headship of, uh, uh, or the godly leadership of men cannot be put in the same category as divorce, lawsuits, or slavery. They're simply not the same. Okay, now, number six, and I've, uh, I'll give you another one here. There's some that are going to say that the arguments made to defend the exclusion of women from being the final spiritual authority in the church or from having equality in the home uh, are parallel to the arguments Christians made to defend slavery in the 19th century. Now, you'll hear this. Okay? Now, listen. The preservation of marriage and, and the, the uh, allowance for men to be, to be the, the final spiritual authority in the church is not parallel to the preservation of slavery. Okay? The existence of slavery is not rooted in any creation ordinance, but the existence of marriage and the existence of male leadership in the church is. First uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 11, um, uh, chapter 14, First uh, Timothy chapter 2. You can go and look at these. Paul's regulation for how slaves and masters related to each other do not assume the goodness of the institution of slavery, but the same can't be said about how Paul um, uh, spoke of, of marriage and, and there being submission in marriage and submission in authority in the church. He linked it back to creation. Okay, uh, Paul sought to uh, sowed within Philemon and Ephesians and Colossians and Timothy the end of slavery. Okay, I mean this is the way you're to treat slaves. This is what you're to do. Okay, and where those seeds of equality came to full flower, slavery was gone. But regulations for how husbands and wives to relate to each other in marriage and how men and women were to be in leadership do assume the goodness of the institution of marriage and do assume the goodness of male leadership in the church. Okay? 
Now, now um, I would say this. I think what uh, those who would make this argument have to remember the, the real possibility that it is not the complementarian, but it's the egalitarian feminists today who resemble, who resemble the 19th century defenders of slavery in the most significant way. Now, how so? And that is that they would use arguments from Scripture to justify conformity to some very strong pressures in contemporary society. And let's face it, there are very strong pressures in contemporary society for me not to say what I'm saying. For me to stand up and say, everything's fine, women can do everything, that, that would make me a popular guy. Okay? Um, and, and instead, I would say that feminists are doing that. That's not me. That's not me making it up from Scripture. That's them having to shoehorn Scripture to fit their agenda. Number seven, I'll give you this last one. If a group of texts is hotly disputed, okay, the, the, the texts we're talking about, there's no question, there's huge amounts of dispute on these things. Wouldn't it be a good principle of interpretation not to allow them any significant influence over our view of manhood and womanhood? And I say, no, this would be a horrible uh, uh, principle of interpretation. Because uh, I can't think of a text in the Bible that has any significant doctrinal value that has not been wrestled over. You and I take for granted today doctrines that we hold because somebody fought fiercely for them. Not because they throw up their hands and say, oh, too much controversy. So it must not be worth pursuing. Second, imagine what it would do if we said that, if we took no stand on things that were disputed or hard. Um, Satan's job would be a piece of cake to mislead the church. All he'd have to do is throw in a controversy. All he'd have to do is start some really good debate and we'd all go, well, that's the end of that. I mean, there's enough room on both sides. I mean, let's give it up. No. There were very convincing arguments for and against the Trinity. Thank God that the Trinitarians won. For and against the resurrection. Thank God those fighting for the resurrection won. Okay, so, so there are times when we take a stand like that. Now, uh, you've got a section on your, on your paper that t- says affirmations. And these are just things, I, this is from a, a thing called the Danvers Statement. You'll see that, I think, at the bottom of your page, prepared by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Woman. I've given you their uh, web address there for you to check it out. But uh, this has just been adapted from that, okay? And this, is, this forms what I feel like is, uh, you want to know where am I going to land? You want to know my creed of biblical manhood and womanhood? Here it is, okay? Number one, both Adam and Eve were created in God's image, equal before God as persons and distinct in their manhood and womanhood. Number two, distinctions in masculine and feminine roles are ordained by God as part of the created order and should find uh, an echo in every human heart. Number three, Adam's headship in marriage was established by God before the fall and was not a result of sin. And there's some scriptures to help you there. Number four, the fall introduced distortions into the relationships between men and women. First, in the home, the husband's loving, humble headship tends to be replaced by domination or passivity, right? You see it everywhere. The wife's intelligent, willing submission tends to be replaced by either usurpation, that is to overthrow, or servility, 
That's, that's how she responds to those two things. In the church, sin inclines men toward a worldly love of power or an abdication of spiritual responsibility. And this is epidemic in the church. Men that won't stand up and take responsibility. And inclines women to resist limitations on their roles or to neglect the use of their gifts in appropriate ministries. Number five, the Old Testament as well as the New Testament manifests the equally high value and dignity which God attached to the roles of both men and women. Both Old and New Testaments also affirm the principle of male headship in the family and in the covenant community. Number six, redemption in Christ aims at removing the distortions introduced by the curse. In the family, husbands should forsake harsh or selfish leadership and grow in love and care for their wives. Wives should forsake resistance to their husband's authority and grow in willing, joyful submission to their husband's leadership. In the church, redemption in Christ gives men and women an equal share in the blessings of salvation. Nevertheless, some governing roles within the church are restricted to men. Number seven, in all of life, Christ is the supreme authority and guide for men and women so that no earthly submission, domestic, religious, or civil, ever implies a mandate to follow a human authority into sin, ever. Number eight, in both men and women, a heartfelt sense of call to ministry should never be used to set aside biblical criteria for particular ministries. Rather, biblical teaching should remain the authority for testing our subjective discernment of God's will. Number nine, with half the world's population outside the reach of of indigenous evangelism, with countless other people, other lost people in those societies that have, it should say, never heard the gospel, with the stresses and miseries of sickness, malnutrition, homelessness, illiteracy, ignorance, aging, addiction, crime, incarceration, neuroses, and loneliness, no man or woman who feels a passion from God to make His grace known in word and deed need ever live without a fulfilling ministry for the glory of Christ and the good of this fallen world. And the last one is crucial. And I deeply, deeply, deeply feel this one. This one, this one is, 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 um, is something that uh, um, I am convinced about. Okay, so number 10. I am convinced that a denial or neglect of these principles will lead to increasingly destructive consequences in our families, our churches, and in the culture at large. And I, as your pastor, I will tell you this. This is where I'm going to take a stand. Um, uh, this is where I'm, I'm going to preach like this. I'm going pr- to call men to account. We see the damage in our culture. The culture we find ourselves in is doing everything to remove distinctions from men and women. From clothes to cologne to marriage, the culture says that distinctions between men, male and female is irrelevant. And we have to challenge that. But, but listen... Outside of the view that I have articulated these past couple of weeks in what the role of men is, what the role of women is, my hands are chained to call the men of this community to stand up and be nail-pierced servants of their wives, of their families, uh, 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 of the church. I can't do that. If, and this is why. If there is to be no distinction uh, in roles, then... Uh, then I cannot call or rebuke men to, to, uh, to stand up and lead their families as Christ led the church. I would just say, hey, if the wife's doing a good job, 
Let her go. If that gal leading the church, that's okay. And that would not only be unbiblical, it would be a violation of the mandate that I have to call on my life to preach the Word of God. I have to preach the Word of God to men and women, boys, girls, teenagers, and I have to preach to them not just the Word of God and dance around who God created them to be. I have to talk to them about this is what God made you for. And you know what that creates when I don't do that or when we don't have any kind of standard? It means it, it, it creates men that disappear or make themselves irrelevant in their homes. And so we orphan our children and sometimes we do it without even leaving the home. And little girls grow up longing for a man to lead them and show them what it means to be a godly woman. And little boys were saying, Daddy, I'm watching. Show me the way to be a godly man. Well, son, there's no difference. Watch your mom, watch me. There's no difference. And Daddy doesn't get off the couch. And so we have a culture filled with, with children who will jump in bed with anybody because Dad was either absent physically, emotionally, spiritually from the home. And even little Christian girls who would say, you know, I'm not jumping in bed with anybody, but you know what? They are attracted to any man. They'll date any man, anybody who will show them strong leadership because they're trying to fill a void in their soul. And we are producing a generation of cowardly, irresponsible, feminized men in this culture. I say that with no apology. I see it almost every day. Guys who won't be responsible enough to get a job that will actually pay the bills. Guys who jump ship when the tough gets going. That's what happens statistically. Statistically, there's a problem in the family and who's the one that jumps and says, I've had enough. Nine times out of ten, it's a man. Why? Because the culture says, there's no difference. And a tragedy strikes a family and a woman is left to fend for herself. No wonder we have women who are crying out and saying, we've got to have leadership somewhere. It's like Deborah. And it's the rare exception when that doesn't happen. There are men who will come to the church and will hunt for women. I promise you. You watch. Foothill Church is going to grow and there will be wolves that come. And sit with us. And if we don't see the Bible is very clear about role distinctions, I have nothing to say to those men. Hey, you know what? I mean, stop it. Stop it. That's, that's what I gotta say to you. Just, just please stop what you're doing. Instead of being able to look at him and say, that is not what God created you to be as a man. We have no standard to call them to. And let me just give you a little word of clarification. You've got it there on your sheet. Women aren't slaves. Okay, hear me say that. I can't think of one time, Michelle is my witness, in 18 years of marriage, where I commanded her to do something against her will. Not one. I can't think of one time where I have told her what she must do to be a good wife in my home. I can't think of one major decision that I've made without consulting her and she's done the same. Listen, we hash it out. We pray it through. We struggle. We fight. We argue. But in the end, it's we that make the decision. We've had to hash through decisions about do we want to homeschool our kids next year or do we want to send them to Foothill Christian School? You know what? It was we that made that decision. I did not tell her, we're doing this and I don't care what you say. We made the decision to come to Foothill Church, not me. 
And I have to tell you, if Michelle ever dug in her heels and said, Chris, I refuse to do what you're telling me to do, or I refuse to go along with what you feel like God is calling us to do, I have to tell you, I don't know what I would do. Because I'm not grabbing her hair and dragging her into the cave. Okay. H, how does this play out at Foothill Church? Let me just give you a few things. Foothill Church has a board of deacons and not a body of elders. Our bylaws provide, and you can look at them, that the official board is comprised of deacons in accordance with 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13 and Acts 6, 2 and 3. So as I stated earlier, 1 Timothy 3 allows for deaconesses to serve in the church. Um, in addition, according to Scripture and under our bylaws, the lead pastor is the spiritual overseer, that is the elder in the church. So under our system of governance, the pastor is the sole elder in the church and the board is made up of deacons and deaconesses. Now hear me, I have to tell you, I don't like that. And I don't personally believe that our form of governance for Foothill Church is, um, is the biblical pattern for leadership. Because if you look at the biblical pattern for leadership, now I'm talking about, take it outside of maleness. I'm just talking about how should it be structured. It should be structured that you will find a plurality of elders, overseers, lead pastors, if you will, of ruling elders that are, um, that, are, that are ruling, that are overseeing, that are giving spiritual guidance to the church with deacons serving alongside them to provide for the physical needs of the body. But our system is American. What can I say? As so many churches are. And Americans like presidents and Americans like a vote. And you won't find either in Scripture. You won't find one example of a man being the sole leader of a church. Not one. Now you might find a first among equals, but it will be a plurality of elders. Okay. So for most churches in America, we being one of them, means we have a senior pastor, we have a congregational form of government. Uh, you won't find either of those in the Bible. What you will find is God-called men crucial, who share the spiritual authority in the church and who appoint deacons as needed to help them minister to the church. So when Paul writes to Titus, he tells Titus to select elders, plural, in every city and says nothing about deacons. That's because the church was just getting started and elders precede deacons. But when he writes to Timothy in a more church church in Ephesus, he says, you appoint elders this way, you do deacons this way. And the church in Ephesus needed both. Now, you're going to find churches that do this today. There are churches who affirm the call on God, of God on an elder and then lay hands on him and them and pray. Elections simply don't happen. That is a peculiar American invention. I promise you. You you cannot, and don't point to Act 6. Act 6 is not an election. Act 6 is choose for yourselves some deacons, and they presented them to the elders, the apostles, and they lay hands on them and they prayed for them. Okay? And there's still churches that do this today. There's a senior pastor who might be a lead pastor who's a first among equals, but he's one of several elders in the church. Um, in fact, in many cases, and I love this idea, 
In many cases, the lead pastor isn't even the presiding elder at meetings. He is one of the elders. Uh, they They don't... elect their elders, they affirm their call and pray for them. And the elders may be full-time staff, they may be lay people called of God, but they are called and affirmed, uh, not asked and elected. Okay, That's number one. That's how we're formed at Foothill. Number two, the official board of Foothill Church does not exercise final spiritual authority. We've talked about that of the church because the official board is not elders, the official board is deacons. Okay, now, most of you know, we have Esther Cappuccelli, we have a woman, uh, Cappuccelli, serving on our board, okay? She is a deaconess, okay? And I've said, that is perfectly appropriate, and I am so glad that Esther is in there. Bernice sits in on our board meetings, and I'm so glad both of them are there. They're wise, they're humble, they're gracious. I've articulated my stance, I've talked to Esther about this. Esther is in complete agreement with me, and, uh, and she is a deaconess, and I might add, a model one, Okay? But here's the thing. The board of deacons serves as an advisory board to me. Okay? They, I, I, they provide oversight for the budget. They are custodians of the property. And I'm talking about uh, constitutionally now. They, they assist me in setting salaries and administering the church body. I seek out their wisdom. I, want, I would be foolish not to listen to them. I seek out Michelle's wisdom. Okay? Compare it there. I'm not going to close my ears to the people that God's given me. But ultimately, the final spiritual authority in my home and the final spiritual authority in the church rests on me. And, and I, listen, I'm not, I'm not saying this is desirous. I've just told you. I don't think that is. I'm telling you that's what we've got. And so, um, listen, I keep the elders informed on matters of church discipline and direction, and I don't do so as one submitting to authority. I do so one at one as, as one who wants to hear uh, other voices. I want to listen to my wife. I want to take in what she has to say. I want to listen to them so that the best decision can be made as the person that is looked to to give the spiritual authority. So you say, well, where's the accountability in that? Well, um, first of all, let me just say this. Um, We have this peculiar sensitivity to accountability. And the problem with the way we do it is our accountability comes on the back end, not the front end. And if you look at Scripture, accountability starts at the beginning. You find God called men or you're done. If you don't have a man of integrity, if you don't have a man who who fulfills the qualifications of an elder... For God's sake, don't get that man. Because there's no protection, there's no accountability in the world that's going to save you from that guy. None. There's no way that if you have elected a man that lacks integrity, you're dead. You can vote me out, you can. Our Constitution says you can vote me out. Our Constitution says, you know, and this is how you do it, and it gives you all the procedure. You can vote me out. But the damage is done. So, Um, that's where the accountability lies. But I think the Bible would say, boy, our accountability needs to be front-loaded, not back-loaded, okay? Okay, finally, number three, Foothill Church may have deaconesses, female pastors on staff, and even a woman guest speaker. I didn't put this on your, your, I just added that today. Okay, I I say that. These may happen. Okay, we've got a deaconess right now. Um, But, uh, uh, 
a, a female deaconess, a female pastoral staff member, a, um, a guest speaker who is a woman, none of these positions would violate scriptural mandate against women holding final spiritual authority because they would come under the headship of a man. So, for example, I could hire a woman pastor to oversee the children's department. I just picked children. She could oversee youth. She could oversee all kinds of departments. Any authority she exercised, though, would be under my authority. Uh, we could ask Beth Moore or Ann Graham Lotz to come and preach to our congregation. They wouldn't come in as the final spiritual authority. They would come under the headship of the lead pastor. So there's no violation when a woman serves as a deaconess, a staff pastor, or speaks as a guest in our pulpit. So, so there it is, okay? That's it. And I believe with all my heart that what I've taught is biblical. And I also believe that there will be people that will find out that we've taken this stand and will say, I don't want any part of it. There will be people that say that have heard I've taken the stand and will decide either not to come or to leave. Um, because this is not popular. And, uh, and if I was interested in running for office, I would never preach this. But I'm not. Um, I am too afraid of God not to preach what I'm convinced the Bible teaches. And to say that I'm, uh, what I'm suggesting uh, won't work in the 21st century is to say that uh, we know better uh, than God uh, what God's people need. And I'm not prepared to say that. Um, and, and, and nor does it bear out with, with uh, what's happening in our world. Saddleback Church, all male elders. Chuck Swindoll's church in, in, uh, in, in uh, Frisco, Texas, all male elders. John MacArthur's church, all male elders. Uh, church, a young guy that I know that pastors a church in, in Texas, all male elders. Mars Hill Church, 20-somethings in this radical, liberal city, all male elders. New Song here in town, all male elders. The concept is not only biblical, it's flourishing, and, in, and it's flourishing in some of the most liberal cities like San Francisco, like Los Angeles, like Seattle. And as your pastor, I'm simply not willing to say, I know better than God because I believe with all my heart there is a way that seems right to a man in his own eyes and in the end it leads to death. But the scripture also say your testimonies, that is scripture, are true, making wise the simple, and I believe I'm simple, and I would rather believe the testimonies of Scripture than the way that seems right to me.